gates open, off and Stiley Sensory stayed in the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and the High Gang Group. Gosford Race Club's new half-million-dollar race, The Coast, was meant to premiere in 2020, but the race meeting was called off at the height of the pandemic. It finally got off the ground last year when The Coast was won by Brandenburg from the John Sargent stable. Sadly, later in the year, Brandenburg had to be euthanised after sustaining a horror foreleg injury in the Wink Stakes at Randwick. The Gosford Entertainment Grounds will be fairly swinging on Saturday, May 7, when the Coast will highlight a top-class standalone metropolitan-class race meeting. Co-features will be the $250,000 Gosford Gold Cup and the $200,000 Takeover Target Stakes. For sheer atmosphere, the Gosford course is hard to beat. The viewing is spectacular from the stand or on the hill, while the smaller-than-normal layout of the track affords easy viewing of all ten races. Gosford committeeman Reg Delaney tells me no stone has been left unturned in preparation for Gosford's biggest day of the year. The date, Saturday, May the 7th, for the Coast, the Gosford Gold Cup and the takeover target at the Entertainment Grounds. Sheila Laxon was still walking on air when she went into a busy shopping centre a few days after winning the 2001 Melbourne Cup with Ethereal. In becoming the first female to train the winner of the great race, Sheila was an overnight celebrity. Not that she knew that as she walked into the shop. Within minutes, she was encircled by a crowd of shoppers, many of them requesting an autograph from the lady who'd captivated TV viewers around the world. More than 20 years on, racing fans and TV watchers with long memories still recognise the lady who turned the 2001 Spring Carnival upside down with an historic Caulfield Melbourne Cup double. The Sheila Laxon story not surprisingly inspired a book called Winning Spirit, published in 2003, covering the life of the obsessive horse lover who was born in Wales, reared in England and drawn to New Zealand in 1981 by the well-known equine culture of that country. She rode 13 winners as an amateur jockey before suffering career-ending injuries in a Gisborne race fall. In 1983, she married the late Laurie Laxon, who became the father of her son John and daughter Lucinda. Astute owners soon recognised the talents of Sheila Laxon. Owners like Sir Peter Vella, who in 1998 engaged her to break in and educate a bay filly by rhythm. Sir Peter was reluctant to break up that partnership and Sheila Laxon became the trainer of Ethereal. The year after her magical experience at Flemington, she was involved in another horrific training accident in Victoria. This one tested her patience, her resolve and her courage. Today, she and partner John Simons are happily ensconced on the Sunshine Coast, combining their talents in the training of a 15-horse team. It's a big welcome 
to the lady who stopped the nation in 2001, Sheila Laxon. Thanks for joining us, Sheila. Lovely to catch up. Oh, Johnny, it's my pleasure to come uh, on your podcast and delighted to be talking to you again. Thank you very much. Sheila, you met John Simons in 2001 when you brought the good mayor over for the spring carnival. You stayed at the famous Macedon Lodge Training Centre where John was the private trainer for the late Kurt Stern who actually established that wonderful property. You love the place. Oh, I did. You know, to come to Australia and find something that was exactly what I was looking for and to have someone training out of the normal boundaries was 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 what made it for me because I could do the work I needed to do up in those beautiful hills and, mm. you know, I was so lucky. I was lucky all the way. John at that time would have been getting pretty excited about a two-year-old cult he had in the place by the name of Belle Esprit who'd won a couple of early stakes races, including the Maribyrnong Plate, and was looking a real blue diamond prospect. In fact, he won that race a couple of months later. Yes, indeed. Uh, I remember him showing Bella Spree to me and and absolutely in, in love with him. Mm. And I must admit, I, I looked at his front legs and I thought, crikey, they're, they're not what you'd consider correct enough to... Um, carry a big two-year-old to two-year-old racing victories like like he did. But mm. he was he's such an astute horseman. He could pick that the horse was um, walking well enough that that would never affect it, and he was quite right. Mm. Well, Bellespree went on to win a Doomben 10,000. He ran second in a Caulfield Guineas. He ran second in a new market. He was a thoroughly brilliant little horse, and I couldn't help but notice you've called your stables... Esprit Lodge on the Sunshine Coast. Absolutely. No, he was an amazing, amazing horse. So tough and so strong. And No, it's, uh, it, was, it was an exciting time to be at Messon Lodge. And his name, of course, has been immortalised as the sire of the unbeaten phenomenon Black Caviar. Indeed, indeed, of which uh, John was the underbidder and I was the one who stopped him. Oh, did you? Mm. We better not mention that. No, we won't go there. (laughs) (laughs) You've had a healthy flow of winners since relocating, and one of them's a good story, Sheila. You won a Magic Millions Country Cup with Irish Constabulary who didn't go into work until he was a seven-year-old. It's an amazing story. It is indeed, and there's nothing like maturity. It's what Bart Cummings used to say, patience is a virtue as far as the racing goes, and certainly we were very patient with him. You wouldn't remember much about your birthplace, Ponty Prid, because your family moved to Kent in England when you were very young, but you do remember learning to ride bareback in the Ponty Prid on Shetland ponies. Yes, indeed. Well, I, I don't. I, I can just remember riding from day dot. So, who, who knows uh, when I when I first started remembering I was riding? But um, I was virtually born on a horse. You know, I rode every second I could. I just adored riding horses. From age thirteen, by which time you were settled in England, you would spend weekends and holidays at the Ted Long Stables at a place called Elam in Kent. This is obviously where you first learned about life in a racing stable. 
Yes, I must say, life in a racing stable was a big eye opener, and um, I did uh, sort of all I w- wanted to do was be able to be good enough to ride every single horse in the stable, and some of them were quite naughty. But yes, I learned the elements of of training horses, what what work they needed to do. Ted was a great repairer of tendons, mm. and so I guess that um, understanding of what you need to do with a horse to keep it absolutely as sound as you can came from those days without me even knowing it. Yeah. Then came a wonderful experience. You started riding work for the great trainer John Dunlop at a place called Arundel, a property owned by the Duke of Norfolk. I believe the training tracks there were just out of this world. Oh, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. They had two um, all-weather tracks and two grass gallops and an enormous park where we worked the horses and it was just magical. It really was. Then came a good job at Chichester in Sussex. You rode work in the mornings for the late Derek Kent and then you'd work in the office during the day. You love that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I had the best of both worlds, especially when the um, stable lads used to bring the horse out so and just leg me on. And then when I came back, I just gave them the horse back. Um, but it was, it was, that was an incredible learning curve as far as racing goes in the office, as well as, um, you know, what Derek did to get his horses performing so well. Mm. You took yourself off on a world adventure at 18 years of age. And of all the countries you visited, New Zealand was the place to tug your heartstrings. You knew you'd return one day, but that didn't happen for quite a few years. That's right. I just adored New Zealand. It was very much like England, but the weather's so much better. And the countryside is so varied between the North and the South Island. It was magical. And the horsemen there were just mind-blowing because – I guess there was so few people there, I think three million people at that stage. So anybody who rode and was good enough used to go to the top and mm. the opportunities for horsemen are second to none in New Zealand. Mm. You were able to realise a dream there by gaining an amateur jockey's licence and for the next 10 years you had the time of your life. Your first race ride was uh, turned out to be your first winning ride too and that was on Loch Ray in a 4,000-metre steeplechase at a place called Taupo. Loch Ray was pretty special to you. Oh, he was indeed. He'd had a couple of jump starts and had lost his jockey both times. So um, I'd actually been to a, a one-day event the day before, and that was quite, you know, quite a difficult thing to do. And then to just go out and ride in a hurdle race, and it's all over and done within within two or three minutes, and you know the results straight away. And the buzz was <laughs> unbelievable. Apart well, from the fact that I, I, I lost my stirrups about three times. <laughs> did you? <laughs> but regained them skillfully. Well, it's just just about yes. I, I managed to manipulate my feet back into the arms, but it was uh, it was such an exciting thing to do. Opportunities were pretty scarce, uh, but you kept chipping away for several years, winning the odd race here and there, and you actually rode thirteen winners in that short career. Um, how many of those were on the flat? Uh, I rode four over the, over the jumps, and the rest were all on the flat. Mm. The first time you met Laurie Laxon, you were not overly impressed. You, you were taking a horse out for a gallop at the Cambridge track 
when a local horseman instigated a conversation. What was your first impression of the man who was destined to train some great horses later in life? Well, it was a wet day. He had a dryer bone on and an um, old cap on, and he was unshaven. And I couldn't really hear what he was saying to me anyway. Mm. I had no idea who he was, so I just kept going and didn't, I ignored him completely. You and Laurie married in 1983 and would become the parents of John and Lucinda, who were both now in their mid-30s. Neither have ventured into racing. No, I probably did what my father did with us, sent us, sent them to uh, private school so they can be educated to the fullest ability they had. And I guess that just takes people away from the grassroots of, of countryside and racing and riding horses, although they did during the holidays and they, they both could ride very well. Mm. But another world opens up for them and, and I guess, um, you know, we've lost them to racing, which is a shame. John and Lucinda, between them, have given you five grandchildren. You were also stepmother to Laurie's sons from a previous marriage, and they've come up with another four grandchildren. You flew to New Zealand only a few weeks ago to catch up. I did. It was fabulous. You know, it's been a hard time with the COVID and not being able to travel around and to get to go back and get to know the family, you know, growing up and everything. It's just... Uh, Nothing beats family and grandchildren, and I can see why people always used to say the best part of um, being a grandmother is that you can give them back, but not yeah. that that really was the case. But, no, it's, uh, it's a fabulous time of my life. You had a lot to do with a very famous mayor, the giant staying mayor, Empire Rose, who contested four Melbourne Cups for Laurie, a win, a second, a fifth, and a midfield at her last ever race start. Now, Sheila, I saw her close up at Bart Cummings Stables one day, uh, some time after. I've never seen bigger feet on a thoroughbred horse. No, I must admit, when I first saw her, I just thought, how could this be a thoroughbred? Mm. And how would it ever become a racehorse? And funnily enough, I, I rode a when she first came into work and I, I rode her in her first gallop and I was just blown away with her ability to accelerate so quickly mm. and then keep finding. And I came back to Laurie and I said, oh, I think this one's all right, mm. which was uh, – it just goes to show it doesn't matter what they look like. They um, If they've got that that engine, then uh, the world's your oyster. Mm. Big Rosie, they called her, didn't they? Yes, gosh, she was huge, huge. <laughs> Laurie was training a horse in 1991 called Triple Crossing. He was one of those horses who was often subtly lame, but vets could never identify the problem. Now, you were the jockey one day at a place called Makaraka near Gisborne. Now, you say he felt scratchy leaving the enclosure, but by the time you got to the barrier, he felt okay. Yes, I'd ridden him once before and certainly when he went down to the post that this particular day, I just thought, gosh, he feels terrible. Mm. Um, I'll get the vet to just look at him, there's something wrong. But of course, the will to win, he was going to win, etc., etc. And by the time I got there, I thought, oh, well, he was sore before, but, you mm. know, he should be all right. He'll be all right. Yeah. 
At what part of the race did he go down, Sheila? Well, he went down about to 600. Mm. And there was no warning? No, no. When you watch the video, luckily we, we could watch the video um, to see what happened. And I wrote him fantastically. I've come up the rail. There's no one around me. And suddenly he just dives to the ground. And uh, and he didn't put his front feet down. He just um, smashed his head into the ground and broke his jaw. Mm. And I ended up between his back legs and he was kicking me. You can see in the film. And But I um, I didn't know anything about it because it knocked me out. And well, I was unconscious for about eight days. You were in a coma for eight days with no idea where you were or what had put you there. You'd sustained a broken leg and a very serious bleed to the brain. Now, the leg repaired fairly quickly, but you suffered mental anguish, didn't you, for a long, long time. Your memory was ineffective. The ability to concentrate was just not there. How long did it take before you started to pick up the pieces? Well, I suppose I know the first three, six months were really hard. I couldn't remember anything anybody told me. I couldn't write even. Um, and you're back in a little place where you you had to find your own way out. And it wasn't probably until about nine months later I actually decided to get on a horse again. Oh, dear me. <laughs> and and it, that was really hard because I had no sense of balance or anything. But because I kept going with it and learnt to balance again and learnt to use all my faculties again, I think that was the most important step for me to get back to, well, let's hope it's normality. It was good therapy. It was brilliant. And and I quite understand why they should be riding for the disabled and things like that because it teaches them to utilise parts of their bodies that they probably don't normally. Mm. And what did you do on the occasion of your first ride back? Did you just walk around quietly or did you rise to the trot or go for a little canter? Heavens no. No, I was flat just walking off the bank I was on. Mm. I can't remember how long I, I actually rode for that day, but I can distinctly remember going to take a step forward and feeling that I had no balance at all and I was going to fall off again. Mm. And, of course, I shouldn't have been riding either. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story of your life. I shouldn't have been riding. Uh, now, fast but- forward to 1999. Peter Vella, now Sir Peter Vella, got you to break in and educate a filly by rhythm out of his stakes-winning mare, Romany Conti, and wasn't she a lovely race mare? We saw a bit of her in Sydney. You remember uh, the rhythm filly as very intelligent and very independent. Absolutely. I was just a little slave to do what she wanted. Mm. No, she was. she really was one out of the box, and... Um, I just loved her her thinking and everything she did. It was just she was so light on her feet and so agile and and very very intelligent. I just I just adored her. Mm. When did you find out you'd be training uh, the filly who would be called Ethereal? Do you remember the moment when Sir Peter told you that you'd be training her? Yes, I do indeed. I know it was um, you know a lot of resources go to very prominent trainers and. And I just kept on to him whenever I saw him. Look, I've got to have her. You've got to leave her in the paddock to train because, you know, she's got a bit of an offset, offset knee. It's no good for her to be in a box, da-da-da-da-da. Mm. And eventually he, he phoned me and said, oh, you can have her to train. I was so thrilled. Oh, isn't it wonderful? 
She ran one second in her first five starts. How did you rate her at that early stage? The first time I galloped, she was a bit like Empire Rose and Fernanda Bell. I just thought, wow, this has got an engine. Mm. You know, she could be anything. And I was absolutely dumbfounded why she couldn't win a race. I think she had seven starts before she won. Mm. Um, and I just, you know, I, I just couldn't put my finger on why she wasn't doing on the racetrack what she showed me she could do. Mm. And then she went for a spell, and when she came back, um, her regular dri- rider wasn't able to ride her in the first race back, and Jimmy Collett got on her, mm. and she won her next three. So it was a combination of a bit more maturity, a bit more understanding, uh, maybe a change of tactics in a race. Um, but after that, she she did enormously well, you know, mm. just a incredible horse to watch. Well, after that winning hat trick, she ran fifth in a Group 3 at Awapuni. She had a little freshen up. She ran fifth in a Group 3 at Trentham. And then off you go to Brisbane for the Winter Carnival. You were originally going to run her in the Grand Prix, but that didn't happen. No, we, we got up to the airport in Auckland and the, the plane that was uh, meant to be taking us over to Brisbane had broken down. So we had to trip all the way back to Cambridge and review what we could do. You rang Jim Burns' manager to offer him the ride in the Doomben Roses. Now, Sheila, this is an amazing story about a twist of fate which would prove life-changing to a jockey who'd spent most of his career to that point in time on the New South Wales Northern Rivers. Yes, and there you go. That's what can happen. Jimmy Byrne was actually booked on her for the Grand Prix. He was... Also had the agent that was um, Scott Seymour's agent. Mm. And, of course, when we phoned him about whether Jim could ride and he couldn't, he was pre-engaged, and then he volunteered Scott Seymour. And Brent Thompson was also um, under this particular agent, and Brent was now Peter Vella's agent in Australia. Mm. So it all fell into place and Scott got the ride. Mm. Well, he rode her perfectly to win the Doomben Roses, He rode her perfectly to win the Queensland Oaks a week later. Didn't he tell you in the enclosure before the Oaks? You'd never met him, had you, till that moment? I hadn't met him till I legged him off in the roses. Mm. And I I just uh, burbled some instructions about how you've got to be kind to her. You mustn't uh, ride her on a tight rein or anything like that. And he would have just thought, what on earth is this girl going on about? Yeah. But yep. um, but after that, you know, he just he just rode her. He just was on song with her every single start. He just knew where to put her, what to do with her, and mm. it was the most amazing partnership. Mm. Was the Queensland Oaks ride his first ever Group One association? I think it was. It was. It was his first ride in a group race, and you wouldn't believe that he'd be that successful in Queensland anyway and always be given the drag when it came to black tie races. Mm. So it was a huge stepping stone for him to be actually maintaining, keeping the ride and then uh, doing what he did. He was, it was a fairy tale. Mm. You took her straight home for a spell after the Oaks and Scott kept in constant touch. Is it true... <laughs> that he offered to fly over at his own expense to ride her in two lead-up races at home before you came back to Melbourne. Absolutely, and, and it was at his own expense, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, but he, was, uh, he wasn't going to get off this one. No, wasn't letting her out of his sight. No, no. 
She placed no, in those two races, didn't she? She ran six to Sunline. Actually, if you ever get a chance to watch that replay, it is just phenomenal. It's only over 1,400 metres because, of course, now she's won what she's won. She's got to go into those big races. Mm. And she was a furlong last by the time they settled. Mm. And his storm came for six. Yeah. And it, it was just enormous what she achieved that day. Back to Melbourne and she struck a crackerjack field in the Yolumba Stakes. What do you think you ran into? Northerly and Shogun Lodge. But you still ran third and no doubt you were pleased. And again, you know, Scott's riding saved all the ground, came up the fence and did her best work at the end. You know, she was just uh, absolutely amazing under his tuition. Mm, They clicked, didn't they? They really Mm. clicked. They did. They did. They were a real partnership. It was... uh, it was gorgeous to watch them in operation. Then came the Caulfield Cup. She raced fairly prominently in a race run at a furious pace. The leaders punctured on the home turn. She and Sky Heights swept around the outside to lead into the straight. But then a horse got up on the fence, a horse called Celestial Show, and looked very dangerous for a few strides. It did indeed, but I think the better part of the track was out a bit wider and um, crikey, he didn't, uh, he would have been suspended for excess use of the whip nowadays, I'm quite sure. Yes, yeah. Uh, but honestly, that was the toughest win you'll ever see a horse do, I reckon. It was just amazing and and like Scott just threw everything at her, threw himself over the line with her and, and just held on. It was fantastic, fantastic. And then came the Melbourne Cup and the rain came to Flemington. It was a soft five, her first time beyond 2,400 metres. You knew you had her as good as you could get her, but your expectations were not high. Not at all. She'd never actually run on a wet track. And as you say, to go up to that distance and on on ground that she hadn't been tested on before, I must say I did go down there feeling that luck wouldn't run my way today and... As you say, I, I rode in the morning at Masson Lodge. It was bright and sunny and she was just so well. I knew that I'd got her there as well as I possibly could get her there mm-hmm. and to go all the way to Melbourne and it's pouring with rain and I'm thinking, oh, this won't happen today. Yeah, yeah. Well, turning for home in the Melbourne Cup, one of the international horses, a horse called Give the Slip, kicked away with a big lead on the home turn. Only one horse came out of the pack to give chase, and that was your Bonnie Mare. She was giving Give the Slip five or six lengths at the 200 metres mark. Nothing else was coming from behind. Her final 100 metres, Sheila, was unforgettable. Just unbelievable. And, And Scott, again, did his homework. He'd walked that track I think five times in total, again on the morning when it rained, and he decided it was going to be best three Mm. wide. Mm. And so he was three wide all the way. So, again, the the 7200 has now become a a further race. Um, And he also thought, I'll wait until the clock tower, and he waits and waits and waits and gives a slip, look like he'd had it all sewn up. And he's he's then asked to go, and it was just – he'd come past me. Of course, you know where the trainers sit. is sort of Mm. a bit further down from the post, and I just – and I just, I just thought she's going to win because she just finished like a whirlwind. Mm. Um, but actually, when you watch the replay, it's, it's only the last bit that he gets there. So he, he timed it to perfection, of course. Mm. 
Sheila, how do you remember and how would you describe the immediate aftermath of the Melbourne Cup win? The presentation, <laughs> the backslapping, the handshakes, the euphoria, the whole unbelievable scene. Were you floating on air? Oh, yes. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's a, it's a relief when, you know, you train your horse and that happens. And I think most trainers go through that, you know, the relief when the horse wins. But with the enormity of what type of race it was that really hits home afterwards. And as you say, you know, the it was just a whirlwind of, of merry, you know, of, of things happening. And, and I never even thought about a speech or anything like that. So I quickly had to make something up as I, mm. I stood there wondering what Nesbo I was going to say. And, you know, it was great to have little John with me and look at his face when she went across the line first. You know, he he looked absolutely thunderstruck that Mummy mm. had been able to do that. And it was that probably was the greatest feeling for me was, was him looking down at me with those tears in his eyes and, and just absolutely aghast at What's mummy done? Yeah. Um, but the whole thing was just magical. And honestly, anybody who can get into a horse to race, try because you never know. You never know. You can get to that moment and it's indescribable. Mm. Sheila, I think uh, ample testimony to uh, the exposure that the Melbourne Cup trainer receives on worldwide television is best illustrated by your visit to the shopping mall, the shopping centre, a few days later. You got the shock oh. of your life and you didn't dress up either, did you? Oh, I just came straight from the stables <laughs> and I was scruffy and oh, I just looked like you do when you come straight from the stables. But I was I – was Lucy had asked me to get her something because she was a naughty girl and couldn't come to the races. Mm. So I was trying to get her something to make up, up to her a little bit mm. and to have all those people following me around. I had no idea the general public – would ever know who I was, and um, you know, I was I was really ashamed that I looked like I did. I must admit. <laughs> and on the way out, my, the, Megan, the friend who was with me, she said, "Oh, that's what you need." She and we went in and we bought a blonde wig. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't be identified for a while until yeah. I got my head around all the you know the fact that you are now known, mm. and it is a it is a, just a mind blowing event when that happens. The power of the media. Exactly right, exactly right. Ethereal came back the following autumn for her final campaign. One run unplaced in New Zealand, then a fifth in the St George Stakes in Melbourne, fifth in the Australian Cup. They were both nice runs, but she was now needing 2,400 metres. How good it was to see her bow out of racing with a gutsy win in the BMW at Rose Hill on Golden Slipper Day. Wasn't that I, – I, that has to be her best effort, to beat that class of field, having to go back like she did and then come at them at the line was just her, her real trademark finish, whirlwind finish, and to get up like she did, it was just an awesome ending for her racing career. Scott Seymour, of course, had been on a, an amazing roll uh, from the previous spring, which continued for a long, long time. He finished up riding more than 20 Group 1 winners. But on the day in question, he won the BMW on Ethereal. He won the Golden Slipper on Callaway Gal and two other stakes races. He rode four winners that day. I don't, I don't imagine that's ever been done before. 
it, that was an incredible ride he was on. I think he won something like 14 Group 1 winners in, in one year after that. And to think how many jockeys are out in the bush like him that have got the ability but don't get the opportunities. And mm. I think it's a great fairy tale story about what happened to him because he mm. happened to be there because the plane broke down and we didn't get there for the Grand Prix. Yes, true. I'm sure there are many in the rural areas, Sheila, but they've got to have the right attitude and the right self-belief. And Scott Seymour always had that. And in many of his interviews, he pointed that out, didn't he? That I just needed to be given a chance on the big stage. Definitely, definitely. And then when he got it, and as I say, with the serial, he made sure every step he had with her, he researched it, he did it, he knew the tracks, he knew where to go, He, you know, everything about it. He did his homework and it paid off in bucket loads. Sir Peter Vella retired ethereal to his Pencaro stud in New Zealand. I think she's had 11 foals, Sheila. Would that be correct? Yes, I think you're right. Yes. Yep, only a handful of winners and nothing within cooey of her own great ability. Yes, I think because I, I actually broke her mum, mother in and... and wrote her all the way through and that particular branch of the family they just couldn't gallop or you 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 won't want to gallop them because they were a little bit um suspect in the you know in the knee department Mm. and i just think that that recipe of not galloping them but getting them very very fit doing hill work um was how they needed to be trained and of course majority of racetracks where you train nowadays you can only train on on the circuits Mm. um and whether that played a part i don't know but certainly both those horses had exactly the same training regimes and and they did exceptionally well with with doing that and i Mm. guess that goes back to my english days where you spend an hour and a half on each on each horse every morning Mm. um and you do the conditioning work and and they bloomed under that and maybe um that line of that family need need that to be as um, potential as as they were. Sheila, I'll just get you to stand by for a moment. We'll clear a commitment on the podcast and we'll come back with Sheila Laxon after this. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com, or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. My special guest is the first lady to train a Melbourne Cup winner, Sheila Laxon. There's nothing you enjoyed more than riding work at Macedon Lodge. One morning you're heading out on a two-year-old filly called Acclaim and you immediately sensed she was in a funny mood and to this day you're not sure why she bolted but you were horrified 
as she approached a high sliding farm gate. Yes, <laughs> crikey. It's the first time I've ever actually been on a bolting horse and I knew I had no control and I had to jump off. And, you know, you can't do it. You just can't do it. Well, I couldn't then anyway. And I decided I can go through a chicane and go up a little hill that was a f- fence at the end of it, mind, um, but maybe I'll be able to get it back to me. But as she went through the chicane, she knuckled over, and when she came up, she was just about two strides from a, a really big iron gate that you slide to open on runners. And um, I just I just knew it was the, we were going to crash and just let everything go. She actually jumped the gate, and I ended up right around the, the steel gate. Oh, dear. It made headlines in the sports pages all over Australia. The, the injury list was horrific. The most serious aspect was the fact that your right femur actually dislodged from the hip joint and realigned itself in the groin socket. Now, you were fully conscious, weren't you? You, you knew was. something was horribly wrong. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny after you've had so many accidents, you sort of you take a few breaths and you just think, now where does it hurt? And, oh, crikey, it was, uh, mm. it was pretty horrific. The femur least- was only one of several ramifications. What else? Oh, I had uh, broken six ribs and punched my lung, had um, cracks in my back, Um bruised kidneys, lacerated liver. You name it. (laughs) Yeah, you name it. I had it. (laughs) Oh, dear me. So you were in the wheelchair for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. um, They said for me not to put any weight on that that leg for about nine months, and Jeepers, that's hard. But, uh, yes, uh, John was very adept at pushing me around in a wheelchair, and and I got quite good on on the crutches too. You've had your share, haven't you? I have, and that's where I go. I've been so lucky that I, I'm still around today and, and walking and being able to do what I can do. You know, any one of those injuries could have been life-changing forever or I should have probably been dead as well. <laughs> but I've, I've been very, very lucky. That friendship that you developed with John Simons at Macedon Lodge eventually developed into a relationship which motivated your permanent move to Seymour, uh, where you both continued with your individual training careers. You love Seymour. Yes, it was a, a fabulous place, and, and we um, developed this great training place, stables and things like that there with a swimming pool and a horse walker and everything we needed, and we had the uphill, which was magic. So um, we went there, and, and John was able to buy the young horses he wanted to buy, and we ended up with a horse called Daintree Duke, who was the best horse I ever mm. rode in my life. Yes, yeah. Um, so, so it was exciting. You know, we had all these, uh, this, this fabulous team of horses, and each other to bounce off mm. ideas about the horses. It was a, it was fantastic. I loved it. I know you were pretty excited about Daintree Duke. He only raced seven times. He won five of them, and then he was involved in a paddock accident. Oh, it was just one of those things. And, of course, it can happen to horses at any stage. But, yeah, he was just a bit full of himself. He was jumping around when the strapper let him go. And with that, he just flipped over backwards and banged his head. And oh. we tried, We sat up with him all night. You know, we tried to see what we could do to try and 
you know, get him to come around. Mm. Um, but in the end, it was decided we had to put him down. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. The Bendigo Shocking. Cup was one of your favourite races. You won two of them. 2002 with Four Lorner, a beautifully bred mare. Yes, she was actually, she was, uh, had incredible ability. And I brought her over to go f- into the next year's Melbourne Cup. And she was actually had a lot more ability probably than Ethereal. Mm-hmm. But as you go with racehorses, um, she got hurt in her first start. So we had to miss the Melbourne Cup, but she came out and mm-hmm. won the Vendigo Cup really, really well. So she had the, um, she had the ability to go on and become a really, really good racehorse. Seven years on and you won the Bendigo Cup again with Super Cool, ridden by Luke Nolan. Yes, he was He was a not very big horse, um, but he was so tenacious and he was a horse that I thought could be a Melbourne Cup horse as well. Mm. Um, and when he came out and did what he did in the Bendigo Cup, you know, I, I think he would have been quite competitive in those big staying races as well. But uh, it was great to win the Bendigo Cup twice because it is a you know it's one of the big uh, staying races on the calendar so mm. that was that was really really nice down under boy was a bit of fun wasn't he he won seven races five in the city yes he was uh, he was a very good horse and he ran a lot of seconds too he could have been so good if he, if those seconds had been wins but um he he actually didn't probably have the um, athletic ability that the really top horses have, but crikey, he would just try. You know, he would just try so hard to win, and that's where all his, um, you know, his success on the racetrack came from. He was nothing much to look at, but he just had a will to do what he was asked to do to his best of his ability. So we did have a lot of fun with him. Fast forward to the present day. You've got a handy little team in work on the Sunshine Coast and our punting friends will be pricking their ears in case you nominate a horse to follow. You've got a three-year-old filly there by the name of Dovetail Diva. She's already won a couple in the city. Where is she? She's um, back in training and back galloping, so hopefully she can get up in time to compete in some of the carnival races up here. And without thinking who's by the sire of the moment, so you think, who got a Group 1 treble at Randwick last Saturday week. What an amazing feat to have that, so you think, perform like he did last Saturday because that wasn't the only place, was it, that he won races, Mm. his progeny won races. But, no, this without thinking, he is a star. Um, And he won three on the trot and his owner was actually offered 750000 for him. Mm which he decided, no, he wanted to carry on racing him, and then he went and chipped a bone in his fetlock, as they do. But he's on his way back, and he's working exceptionally well, and I think we're going to see the real without thinking, you know, when he starts back at the races, his uh, prep. What about a maiden horse called I Ponder, a four-year-old maiden? You tell me he won't be a maiden much longer. He won't be a maiden much longer. He's another, so you think, uh, very big horse and he has needed the time, but he just shows a latent ability to be a really good horse over ground. So mm. I can't wait to see him performing in a month or so. Sheila, I don't know if you're a fan of the great music of the 30s and 40s, the era of the great composers, but the legendary George Gershwin had a massive hit in the 1930s with a song called 
They can't take that away from me, which has been recorded subsequently by every high-profile singer in the world. What an ideal theme for your life in racing and for that history-making Melbourne Cup win. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, I was just so lucky, so lucky to have everything fall into place like it did and then have Cyril and Scott Seymour work the Oracle on, on Melbourne Cup Day, November 2021. It was just uh, it was just made for storytelling. Great to catch up. It's been a long time, Sheila. Congratulations on all you've achieved and I hope there are many more wins in store on the beautiful Queensland sunny coast. Uh, thank you, Johnny, and I look forward to catching up maybe in one of those little small cupboards at the race course again. Oh, oh that's right. We <laughs> should tell the story, Sheila. The first time you and I met, uh, you were over with a filly <clears throat> for the Australian Oaks, and uh, I did an interview with you on the Sky Racing Service, and you were anxious to find a television monitor uh, so you could watch your filly in action. I took you into the Sky Channel makeup room where there happened to be a monitor and we watched the race together. What was the name well, of that filly? Starwatch. Starwatch. Did she? She, 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 yeah. she, she, she became filly of the year in in, uh, in New Zealand and she was she was a really, really top horse. Um, but, yes, yeah, Starwatch. Great to talk. Thanks for your time on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Thank you, Johnny. Lovely talking to you again. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30ml of Recuperate drawn from the 500ml bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase.